Hi guys, so welcome to the conversation with Samuel or Luke Bemini. So a few weeks ago, I got a chance to speak with the former secretary to the federal government and also a former minister of finance in Nigeria during the Ibrahim Babangida regime. He is also a two-time presidential candidate and famously ran against Odusha Gombasanjo in 1999. My guest on the conversation is Pa Olufalaye. Enjoy. I've gone through your profile a bit before coming. Quite uh, intimidating, a former secretary to the federal government and also minister of finance. And uh, I, I really do not know where to start. And I also know that you are a member of the ruling house, of one of the ruling houses in Akure. Yes, the vice chairman. But perhaps we should kick off from there. What was it like growing up with, uh, from a royal background? Well, you know. Royal families are very large families, uh, and um, therefore, uh, even my contemporaries, whose fathers were others contemporaneously, uh, did not enjoy any undue privilege because the Oba probably had about two hundred children. And uh, therefore, whatever wealth or whatever he had, it did not make most of the children any different from the rest of us. But in my own case, I, my own father was not a direct son, although of the royal family, also of family. My father believed that uh, you must work for whatever you want in your life. And grandmother, the translator says, she used to say, nobody will give you a seat because of your father's wealth. So you must work for your own success and have your own achievements. So growing up, I was like, therefore, like most ordinary children of my age. And um, what was peculiar about my going to school that I started when I was only five years and three months old, which was most unusual mm. in 1944. Uh, people didn't go to school until they were eight or ten or even twelve in those days. But in my case, my father had gone to school himself for a brief period, and uh, illness, uh, he fell ill and uh, he had to stop going to school for a while. And when he was well again, he was told that if he went back, he wouldn't be able to cope with whatever had been taught in his absence, that he should skip that year and resume the following year, but that he was never allowed to go back to school. Rather, he was asked to go and deal with his uncle, his father's, his mother's brother, who had no child of his own at the time, as some kind of uh, comfort. So that was, according to him, he was tricked out of school and uh, was determined that if he had any child, he would grow up in school. So at the age of five years and three months, he took me to St. Stephen Junior Primary School here in Akure. And um, the school authorities considered me too young. Of course, I didn't pass the usual test of stretching my right hand 
over the top of my head and touched my left ear. I failed that test, and so I was ejected. But my father refused to take no for an answer. For four days, he took me to school every morning to insist that I should be taken, that he didn't want me to miss education like he missed it. And eventually, after four days, I was admitted to school. I did your five years and three months. Later, I discovered that some of my classmates were seven, eight years older than I was. But mercifully, I, I did well, and um, my father never regretted that he sent me to school so early. You studied economics? Yes, I did. Why did you opt for that course? Why, do, why does anybody opt for any particular course? Circumstances surrounding your life, accidents or experience, combined to determine your future. I, in my case, I could have done any course at all, um, but I enjoyed literature history and I was I was very outstanding Yoruba and uh, so I decided to do arts but rather than go and do another degree in history or geography I when I was in HSC in government college I was taught by one Mr. Greg he taught us economic history that was my first contact with economics and uh, history of the industrial revolution and things like that so it was that kind of contact that encouraged me to uh, go and read economics. Um, and I thank God I did because um, economics is a discipline, but it's also a philosophy. It's a way of looking at reality. Mm. Uh, whatever it is you are doing, you can look at it from the economic point of view. There are many things we do that excite us, interest us, but that do not make economic sense. But we do them for other reasons. So I, I thank God that I have a discipline which is applicable to any situation and everywhere. Now, let's take it back to your background. You're a politician. You've uh, been in politics for a while and you've rarely, or perhaps let me say, never been blemished by the usual controversies that surround uh, politicians these mm -hmm. days. Uh, let's, let's talk about how your background perhaps helped shape the strength of the character that you have that perhaps make you seem quite untouchable by all of these controversies? Well, first of all, um, I was brought up by my grandmother. That's my father's mother. I lost my mother when I was eight years old. And thereafter, I lived with my grandmother. And of course, she belonged to a completely different generation. Their ethics was of a, of a different kind. I'll give an example. When I was in primary school, one day I was returning home after school along the Jomo Street area, and I saw a small bit of razor on the, on the ground. As a child, I was delighted. I picked it. I had acquired a new property. When I got home, I told my grandmother that uh, my mom was lucky to do when I was coming out. Found an eraser on the ground and I picked it. He said, uh, Who gave you? I said, No, ma, there was nobody there. He said, Yes. Why did you take it? I said, Because it was there. He said, Yes, but why do you have to? He said, The owner gives you. I said, He wasn't there. I said, Yes. He said, Unless and until the owner gives you his property, it cannot be yours. If you take it, you are a thief. That shook me. So Mama said, I was a thief for picking up a tiny bit of eraser from the street. He said, after you have your own. I said, yes. Yeah. I said, why do you take that one? 
And what did she do? She went and took a whip, put her wrap on her head, and followed me to the very spot from where I picked the razor. Led me there and had to put the razor back on that very spot. I will never forget that experience. That was a kind of ethics with which we are brought up. I'm sure today if uh, some pastors find five million naira by the wayside, they will say El Shaddai has provided for them. And they'll go and pay tight on it to sanctify it for spending. But my mom said, they are thieves. That which is not yours, you must not take, you must not use unless and until the owner either says it to you or gives it to you. Otherwise, don't touch it. So, with this kind of background, you cannot understand why people like me will never, uh, not only did we not do any deals to steal public funds, I thank God it never crossed my mind that it could be done. It never crossed my mind. Not that I, I was tempted, then I demonstrated some uh, sense of character that I didn't do it. No, the Lord didn't let me be tempted. And one of the biggest uh, problems that a lot of persons have identified in Nigeria now is character deficiency. Now, yes. when you look at your own background, yes. look at all you had to go through, yes. uh, what do you think is exactly wrong with Nigerians, with Nigeria entirely and Nigerians? Okay, I, I tell you, you see, over the years there have been a general deterioration in the family. It's, a, it's very existence. Of course, consequentially, it's values. When I was uh, at the height of my career in Lagos, as a permanent secretary, living in Ikoi, we had some neighbors, some colleagues, who are civil servants like ourselves, who would leave their offices ahead for the mainland to their business outlets. Their children would be alone in their official quarters in Ikui doing whatever they liked, like free-range cows. Mm. That was the kind of development that ushered in this deterioration in upbringing and family values. Parents were no longer available to bring up their children in accordance with their culture, tradition and ethics. The pursuit of money and career undermined the ability of the, of the family to discharge that obligation to the next generation. And I also add that at the national level, the, the civil war also dealt a serious blow at ethical behavior. What do I mean by that? During the war, um, emergency contractors Became millionaires. They would be asked to supply uh, rations and supplies to the fighting forces. Most of the time, they supplied it or nothing and got plenty of money. And they became very wealthy people. These, the, that kind of thing watered down the, 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 the ethics of the people and our respect for integrity. And over time, people, other people decided to join them. I mean, if these referrals are making so much money, and do much better than they are doing. So let me join them. So these were all the factors that combined to lead us to where we are today. Then unemployment came 
because of a failure of government, to plan and implement their plans to ensure that the economy did not just grow, but it also developed by increasing output as well as employment. So all this led to where we are today. Um, the family, most families are no longer in charge of anything. Poverty has undermined the father's authority over his family. If you cannot feed your children, you cannot exercise authority over them. And in fact, in certain cases, children will go out and steal and use part of the stolen money to feed their parents. Even if the father didn't think it was right, but it was necessary to compare him, to condone what would ordinarily be condemned by him as unethical and criminal. So these are the factors that have led us over a very sad situation. In fact, my worry is that the present generation knows only that which now exists, which does not truly represent what we are or who we are. So if you talk about those issues, you sound like somebody from outer space. Yeah. Yes, well, what is he talking about? Yes, please carry on. Yeah, I feel the need to ask you about your thoughts on events of the past few days. We've had the NSAS protest, and we saw what what the aftermath of that, the shootings in Lekki, and then the consequent lootings and vandalism of public and private property. Mm. Perhaps we should take it from this instance. Do you align your thoughts with uh, the demands of young people that perhaps the units, the dreaded units, SARS, should be scrapped? All structures of oppression should not exist. All structures of oppression in society, um, including laws, repressive laws. I was reading in the papers today that some people want to bring a law that will regulate and emasculate social media. Those are the kinds of things that happen in dictatorships. And uh, so as a Democrat, uh, all my life I'm opposed to anything that we uh, oppress people, uh, intimidate them, and prevent them from standing for what is right. Uh, you may of course want to know that um, when I was just two weeks old as an undergraduate in Ibadan in September 1960, I was one of those who went to Lagos to the House of Representatives to protest against the rumored proposed Anglo-Nigeria Defense Pact, who are told by the Students' Union executive that uh, the British made our leaders to sign the secret heads of agreement with them agreeing that should Britain go to war after Nigeria would have become independent, Nigeria would still send troops to support Britain in fighting that war. So we were enraged when we heard that, and we took to Lagos and went into Parliament. Actually, we went into the chambers where Parliament was meeting to disrupt a meeting of Parliament. It would have shot all of us. We did not just demonstrate outside. We broke into the chambers. We disrupted an ongoing meeting of the House of Reps. People, ministers were there, Benson, Okotia, but Prime Minister, they were all there. We ended the meeting because we saw ourselves as the conscience of the nation, that you people have mortgaged our future. 
If wars have to be fought, they will not be fought by old people, they will be fought by young people. And we are the ones they will send to go and fight a useless war that does not concern us, whatever it was. So, based on that, we felt justified in doing what we So, what I'm saying, anything that we oppress, that we unfair, I've always joined others to fight against it. And when Abacha Tirani came, I'm sure you know that I was the leading member of NADECO. Yeah, I was definitely come to Okay, that. And, uh, <laughs> and for that I went to jail or in detention yeah. for two years mm-hmm. for committing no crime. So it's important to say this because the younger generation may not know that some of us of the older generation were, were champions, were heroes of democracy. Well, totally unafraid of a military government. We gave Abacha an ultimatum to restore Abiola's mandate. So he felt challenged and decided picking us up. I, that was a, a, a leading member of the government to which he too belonged. I was second to the government, yeah. Minister of Finance, in the Babangidad government, yeah. where he was chief of army staff. So he could not understand how I could join other people against his government. But I said, look, what you do, what, I'm not fighting you, I'm fighting your action. If you purge yourself of the what you've done, destroy Abiola's mandate, we'll be friends again. But he could not distinguish between himself Exactly. Are you quite disappointed with how the president has handled all of this? Well, you know, I don't um, must recognize my age and status. Uh, I don't make personal attacks. I don't attack persons. Um, but I, I criticize policies and offer alternatives. Even when I was buying for office, I never criticized anybody personally. The government has not handled the situation well. Uh, the matter could have been nipped in the board if there was immediate and positive response uh, to them, to what they wanted. And uh, after the unknown soldiers had shot at those youth demonstrating uh, peacefully, the, the delay was embarrassingly long. It's not, it's, it's not a tradition to engage uh, people disagree with us and discuss with them and try to persuade them. The, the instinctive reaction is they are opposed to all our enemies, let's go after them with violence. That mindset must change because society is changing, the world is changing. Uh, the only constant in the world in which, in which we live today is change itself. And societies that don't recognize change, that fail to manage change, that tend to resist change, end up in crisis. Um, I often cite uh, Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia in the heart of Europe. When communism collapsed, because communism was what held Central and Eastern Europe together, and change became glaring. The leaders of Czechoslovakia decided to manage it. And after some negotiations, they, they broke into two countries, Czech Republic and Slovakia without finding a shot. I call that managed change model. They managed that change. Next door was Yugoslavia. You know, for many years, Marshal Tito yeah. was the president of Yugoslavia. And because of his uh, commitment and statement, statesmanship and skills in managing men and matters, Yugoslavia was a peaceful country. Although had so many ethnicities within his boundaries. When he died, lesser men who came to the leadership of Yugoslavia swore that there would never be any change in Yugoslavia. So they resisted change. What happened? The Bosnia war broke up. Almost 10 years, thousands and thousands of people were killed. Ethnic cleansing took place. 
And at the end of all that bloodshed, what happened? The country that didn't want change broke into about eight different countries. Bosnia, Herzegovina, Macedonia. So, therefore, we have to look at reality and manage it intelligently in a manner uh, that will bring peace and progress to our society. It's stupid to resist change when change is actually inevitable. And change need. and I also mentioned the Britain that created Nigeria. They call themselves United Kingdom. Kingdom. United Kingdom, today there are four nations. There is the yes. Scottish yes. Parliament in Edinburgh. Yes. And then there is the Welsh Assembly in Cardiff. Northern Ireland. Stormont Parliament in Northern Ireland. And Parliament in Westminster in yeah. London. In other words, the so-called United Kingdom is now a de facto federation. There are three regional governments mm. in Northern Ireland, in Wales, and Scotland, with the de facto federal government in Westminster in London. And these are people of the same color, race, language, religion, culture. They still have their distinct identities and governments. It was not so 50 years ago. There's a world movement, universal movement for self-determination, for identity, enhancement, etc., etc. We cannot opt out of that movement. Nigeria cannot. If the English, the Welsh, the Scottish, and the Irish are responding to it positively, we can. Now we have about 440 distinct ethnic nationalities in Nigeria. We don't speak the same language or culture or religion. We cannot be managed within a unitary structure. It's not possible. If Britain cannot do so with their homogeneity, how can we do so with 400 ethnicities without heterogeneity? It's not possible. So therefore, um, the sooner our leaders understand these issues and relate or react appropriately to them, the better. It's better to creatively manage change that is necessary. Because it's not good. the demand for change will not go away. Mm. That, that, that's more or less what we've seen yes. in the demand for restructuring. Yes. But it appears this government and even previous governments and generally the disposition of so many persons at the top towards restructuring is um, quite indifferent. They don't seem to want to welcome the idea of restructuring. What do you think might happen in the long But I've run? told you already yeah. that there are two models. You are, we will either change. recognize ready to manage the change and be part of this and flow with it and ensure it does not do any damage or much damage and you'll be at peace or you resist it stupidly and to blow up your face mm. as it did in Yugoslavia. And so you're not ruling out that perhaps uh, all the major regions across the country might eventually break into smaller countries if we fail to manage it and it becomes violent. That is a distinct possibility. That's why I will advocate that we manage change. And we have, ex as I mentioned, examples. If you are not aware of there are examples around us. Look at Britain. Look. In 1707, the British Parliament passed what they call the Act of Permanent Union. Act of Permanent Union. That act is still on, on the statute books today. Despite that, they have granted home rule to Scotland with a chief minister in Edinburgh. They have granted home rule to Wales. Stormont is independent in 90% of issues from the British government. 
So if Britain can make these changes, is an is an ad, admission of reality. It must move with the time. It is a universal world movement. It will not stop in Nigeria. It's like the coronavirus. It will visit you. You must react to. And when people want freedom, until they get it, they don't stop. That is why all empires have failed. All empires. From the time of the of the Greeks, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, all empires have failed. And all empires will fail. Why? Because empires represent arrangements in which you have people who are willing to be where they are put. They, they are not comfortable with the arrangement. And the human spirit wants freedom. So it will fight until freedom is achieved. Apartheid in South Africa. Nobody thought in our lifetime that we have democracy in South Africa. Because the, the, the Boers were in total control. The blacks were consigned to the rural areas. They were, they never, were not allowed to live in the cities. Yeah. But because of the refusal of the human spirit to accept local slavery as a permanent arrangement, finally, apartheid crumbled. And today, we have independence. So, so if apartheid can crumble, if the Roman Empire could fail, and the Chinese Empire and all the Empire and the British Empire could fail, and the permanent union of Britain of 1707 can now adjust to what you have in Britain today, surely the present situation in Nigeria, which many people don't accept, cannot stand. Uh, you know, you, your submissions have thrown up further questions. Yes, and, indeed. I, and I would like to ask this one. Yes, the, there is the assumption yes. that the northern part of the country, yes, that has perhaps the biggest, the largest population, is quite obsessed with the current structure that Nigeria has. What do you think accounts for that? No, sort no, of no. Obsession? It, it, it is it's just because of the perception that. Uh, this present arrangement favors them more than the rest of Nigeria. Mm. And what uh, great idea, uh, maybe reality for a while, was that, I would say, 40, 50 years ago, on a per capita basis, we didn't have as many graduate educated people mm. in the North as we had in the South. So the few vacancies, positions that existed, the few people occupied them and did uh, move very rapidly into uh, comfortable positions because of the uh, scarcity of talent uh, yeah. where people were educated. Whereas lots of people were already educated down here and the competition here was stiffer, uh, more difficult. So that was a, a passing phase. If I would used to say, give them education and someday they'll be like us. Education transforms. Although we're not the educational disparity is still there, but it's the, wide, the gap is not as wide as it used to be. And the opportunities are not as plentiful as, as they used to be even the North. Today there are unemployed people all over Nigeria, North, East, West, wherever. So for a while they, were in, they believed that this present arrangement is good, it's fine. But I'm sure you are aware that today youth in the North are also protesting. Many of them are not finding the kind of employment or life career they, that, that, that they would like. And I believe that partly accounts for 
wide use of drugs among the youths. The former Emir of Kano once said that the northern, that the north had no future. That drugs among youths had destroyed the future. Drug use is often due to frustration. And frustration occurs when you cannot achieve what you want to achieve today. So, therefore, what I'm saying is that the uh, while in the past uh, accepting the present situation as good and comfortable was quite understandable. But progressively, northern youth like southern youth will see and are seeing that we need to change this present arrangement to open up the system to everybody. All right. Thank you very much. I just now quickly let's. Would you want to take a quick break? No, I, I thought I saw mommy trying to call me. Mm, yes. Okay. Okay. Let me. I was going to say. Yeah. Yes. All right. Quickly. A lot of people want to know. You worked as secretary to the federal mm-hmm. government yes. and then minister of finance yes. under military uh, president General Brian Babangida. What yes. was it like working with a man that uh, is dubbed the evil genius? Uh, well, you're asking me to give you an, my appraiser of President uh, Babangida, either as a person or a soldier or a ruler. But I will tell you that um, I did not regret going to work with him. You may or may not know that I had retired from the civil service as a permanent secretary yeah. in 1981 uh, when I was 43 years old. I'm going to work as managing director of a bank, Nigeria Machado yeah, Bank. And it was five years later that Babangida became president and invited me back to come and be secretary of the government. Of course, I was reluctant to go back into the civil service. First, because uh, by the time I was returning in 1940, sorry, in 1981, I've been permanent secretary for five years. And I had been marking time on the same salary scale for three years. Grade level 17, step three. At the time, my children were few and young. My monetary salary had got to a climax. The real purchasing power of my salary was going to be going down due to inflation. And my responsibility is going to be rising. And very soon, there will be a gap between my responsibilities and my income. And at that point, you have to make a choice, either to join the thieves to augment your income through criminal activities or go out and seek greener pastures. So I decided to, before getting to that point, uh, and for other reasons, or career frustration, I don't want to dwell on that today, I decided to retire at 43. And um, so when I decided to work with him, I didn't know him well, I, well, if I saw him, I recognize him. We met, when, uh, often went to cabinet meetings with uh, General Basenjo, who was military head of state and was permanent secretary, working with him in the presidency okay. from 1977, 78, 79. So from that setting, I knew that I became a member of ruling council after the Oka coup. So now, um, I didn't know him, and he insisted I should come. Finally, I agreed. I gave me a condition. I said, all right, I will leave my comfort zone in the bank, come back into the civil service, provided 
you prevail on the bank to second me back to government. I.e., I will remain the managing director of Nigeria Merchant Bank for the duration of my service with you. The bank will continue to pay my salary and pay me all my allowances, but I'll be working free to government as a donation from the bank. A condition which I accepted. And the bank wrote a letter which I have with me to feature in my memoirs that they were happy and privileged to ask to make their managing director available to serve Nigeria at the service of the government of Nigeria. And they will gladly pay me my salary and allowances for as long as I was the government. And I was free to return to the bank whenever I finished. And I would be most welcome. Those are special conditions are negotiated. I didn't want the job. I thought he would say, who the hell is this? Mm. Forget about it. He didn't say so. So I went to work with him. I was just setting the stage in which I went to work with him. And um, I asked him, sir, why did you insist on my coming to work with you? And he said to me, he said, Olu, if you are sitting where I am sitting, confronted by the economic crisis that the nation was going through, the collapse of oil prices, accumulated trade areas, and you are aware of a Nigerian who was a public officer, who goes to the highest level in the public service, a professional economist then went to banking as managing director of a bank in the private sector, who was combining both private and public sector experiences in the relevant areas of finance and economics. So won't you invite him to come and help you? I said, I will listen. Fine, that's why I insisted that you should come. Now, having come to work with him, I can tell you that President Babangida was perhaps one of the most patient listeners I've ever known. I worked with General Bassinger before him. I worked with him, I worked with several other people. He will listen to you very carefully. Don't interrupt you. Some mothers will interrupt you and shout no. And uh, I will thank you for any good work you did for him. He had that finesse and polish of appreciating people. He was a very intelligent person, very perceptive. Couldn't pull wool over his eyes. Or they will not shout and scream. But after you finish your presentation, you ask the relevant questions that were the seat, the clarifications required. And uh, I was very, I was touched deeply by his humanity. Um, it was not uncommon for him to say, Udu, congratulations this morning. I said, what's this? I said, today's your wife's birthday. Mm -hmm. It remind me. Yeah. But my wife's birthday or the birthday of one of my children. There aren't too many bosses who did that. Mm -hmm. There are too many bosses who will thank you for an official job done. So thank you very much. It's a very good job. Considering that I was not earning any salary from the government, my bank was paying me as by the arrangement we made. Yeah. Thank you was worth millions to me. Remind, remembering that I had a wife whose birthday was occurring tomorrow made very much to me. Um, so I found it very congenial working with him. Um, as I said, I did not regret 
working with him. Because, after all, as an advisor, what, what do you expect? All you should expect is that the person you are advising to at least give you audience. Mm -hmm. Hear from you. It's not obliged to take any or all or some of advice you give him. It's an entire prerogative what he does with what you say to him. He has no obligation to accept any of it. But of course, you will naturally expect that you will find some of what you are saying to be useful and to accept it. And so it was. Um, so, um, I, General Babangida was a very kind and generous person. Uh, some people uh, might have over-exploited that. And uh, quite often he commit himself to, to helping people. And it's not, un, it's not unusual that uh, at some point the promise is made to one entity might conflict with what he promised another entity. So part of my job was to reconcile those conflicts. Mm. Yes. Because of his good nature, we say yes to you and yes to him. Mm. But it cannot be yes to both when they come to delivery time. Mm. So as an advisor, then it should be my duty for me to find a, a modus vivendi between his promise to you and his promise to him. So this is my, in brief, is my uh, assessment of General Babangida. Um, he, he, he wanted, he was a very qualitative man. Uh, I want to say with all humility that he assembled perhaps the most qualitative cabinet that Nigeria has ever seen. But his greatest sin in the Nigerian I'll, system I'll come is, to that. Yeah. I know people are very anxious to <laughs> make song and dance of that one. But most, I consider that an unfortunate mistake that annulment of Abiola's election, for which I spent two years in detention. So I was hurt personally by that action. Uh, I believe that um, I don't want to arrogate to myself more than is reasonable. But I believe that if I was still working with him at that time, he might not have made that mistake. Why? Because I always told him the truth. Not in the sense of, I told you so, no. But I will tell the truth without giving offense. There are many of us who, who get our advice rejected, not because the advice is not sound, but because it's thrown at the person being advised crudely put to give offense. I would have advised him properly in, in private not to do what he did. I didn't need to do it. You've been president for eight years. You yourself told me that even if you were a civilian, you couldn't go for more than eight years in office. So you didn't, you didn't need to do this. Of course, there were threats from his constituency about your last election. We will find a way. God has find a way. In my eight years of working with him, 
we were in difficult situations many times and we were able to find an acceptable way out on those occasions. I believe we might have been able to find a way out if I was still working with him. The first Nadeko meeting held in your house, that's what some of us have read, and then you were part of that struggle. And like you mentioned earlier, you were in prison for about two years on the basis of that struggle. What fraud you all through? What what? Fraud you. What sustained me? Yes, yeah, sustained you to keep going all through. I didn't need any fraud. It was wrong. And um, the annulling Abiola situation was the right thing to do. So, um, the Abacha government was surprised and angry that I, that was a colleague in Abacha government two months ago, can now be in Nadeko and be opposed to what And I sent messages to him through channels available to me. One of them was Professor S.A. Luko, who was for some time the economic advisor to the Abacha government. I told him that you, tell, you should tell Abacha that he should restore Abiola's mandate and the problem will be over. Uh, but I'm sure Aluko told him, but I don't think he was prepared to leave office um, at that point. So I didn't need any incentive. My commitment to the truth compels me to stand by what is right. And uh, when I was in detention, I can tell you that on at least two occasions, uh, people came to me who said they were sent by the then government to appeal to me to withdraw my membership of NADECO from detention and that they would release me to go home. And the first occasion, that was what they said. But I said that I was one of the three people who are mandated to suggest a name for our movement, which we then say should be known as National Democratic Coalition. That a child which I took part in, in naming and baptizing, I cannot now disown him that I don't know him. That's the first. The second occasion somebody else came, that the, a former commissioner, that the government has sent him to me, that knowing his relationship with me, to say that I should withdraw from Nateko, they will release me and give me an appointment. And I said, I've had too many appointments already. I didn't want another one. I've been director for planning for Nigeria, professional, that's a career appointment. I've been a federal permanent secretary, career. And uh, I have been secretary to the government of Nigeria. I've been minister of finance of Nigeria. What further appointment do I have? Those four appointments, if some people have just one of them in a lifetime, it will be celebrated. In a country of 200, 200 million people, for you to become the minister of finance, even for one day is an achievement that God had enabled me to hold all the four or five for 15 years. Without break, I held very tough positions that I didn't need any more appointments. And so I could not be enticed to abandon the struggle 
because I wanted to get an appointment. Or I wanted to be free. I said, the Lord will free me in his own time. And he did. So, I didn't need any incentive at all. Abiola was quite uh, a man who had the trust of virtually everybody. He had widespread support across all the states in Nigeria then. These days, it looks quite difficult to see that measure of support for one politician. How exactly can Nigerian politicians rebuild that trust deficit? Well, I'm sure you know that for about two years now, I've retired from partisan politics. Yes. It's not, I don't know of any Nigerian who had, before me, who had formally announced his retirement. I don't know of any. In fact, I was told nobody has ever done it. I said, yes, I'm not nobody. I will announce it. It's for a very good reason. I wanted, and I still want the world to know that I have on my own decided to give up partisanship. You see, there are people who also announced that they are no longer active in politics, who are still doing politics. I'm not that kind of person. When I'm doing politics, I'm doing politics. When I'm not doing it, I'm not touching it. So I've retired from partisanship. Of course, I've discussed affairs of the, of the country. But partisanship to sit with some people that is our party, this is our person. No, that's gone. Now, how do politicians rebuild confidence? Well, what we are going through is perhaps it's a crisis of confidence. We have abused the privileges that we had, the positions we had. And we, pre we did not behave as if we were aware that people were seeing what was going on. We were preaching morality when we were busy stealing public funds. The young people know, everybody knows this. So the way only work back is for us a new leadership to lead by example. It's the only way. There are no two ways. Not someone, not uh, homilies preaching. It's leadership by example. If you are a leader, a governor, or a president, and you are honest, you are committed to the welfare of the people, genuinely committed, and you are doing it, people will know. In no time at all, they will see it. But if you are doing this under the table and you think people don't know, you are just wasting your time. People just laugh at you behind your back. But if you demonstrate your sincerity and transparency, and you live that life, you'll be, you'll be shocked. In a few years, Nigerians will begin to change. Ah, Kunibao, They know us, they know people. Yes. So, it is leadership by example, not writing a long essay on corruption, how to uh, fight corruption, how to make laws to put people in jail. People who are appointed to take looted money from public officers are themselves looting the money, abusing the... So people become cynical. As I used to say, you know, at one meeting in Ife, I said, I see Nigeria as a very pretty young lady who has been deceived and ravished and raped by young men after young men. Pretending, telling him that they love her. I said, now she no longer believes anybody. He said, I love you, say, go to hell. <laughs> go and love, go and love in hell. 
You want to rape me like the others? They don't, she doesn't believe anybody. But if she finds a young man who doesn't even make any speech, who just relates to her and operates, and she says, over a period, she'll be persuaded by her own experience that this is a genuine person. This is the only way to do it. No other way. Thank you very much, Abba. Let me just ask a couple of personality questions yes. so that we put all of that in the mix. I think I have everything that I need on the state of okay. the nation. Uh, where do I start from? Okay, I think we should start about, we saw Mommy pop out uh, a couple of uh, minutes ago. Let's talk about how you met her. Who? Your wife? wife? Yes, because I know I saw an article where you said she has done a lot for you. So perhaps you should take it off from how you met her. Without a wife who shares your aspirations and commitments, you can't do anything. Because if you, every time I get, and I go on, uh, maybe uh, when, when you are logged off or not doing anything wrong, and she's looking after the children by herself, if she comes to me in detention every day and she's crying out, you know, my, my spirit may, may break. Uh, maybe I'll have succumbed to one of those temptations. To denounce Nadeko and go home, to go and join my wife to face me. No, but she did not put that pressure on me, so I acknowledge that. No way. Well, um, I put it this way we are both born here, and our homes, looking at it now, are not more than half a kilometer from each other. We attended the same primary school. I'm not saying we are classmates, so. I was about four years ahead. When I was in the... I'd left the junior St. Stephen's Junior Primary School before she entered. And I went to Senior Primary School at Okijebu. But we... I knew of her in two ways. One of my cousins who lived in the same house with me was a classmate, and they sat together on the same desk. They were neighbors, and they fought every day. On, on top of the... Her hand went to my cousin's side. He hit her hand with a ruler and told me when she got, got home. That's how I first knew her. Then, of course, by reputation, she was a very outstanding pupil. Uh, in primary fact, she, she, she skipped one class. Also very good. And uh, so I got to know her. She was a very brilliant young girl in St. Stephen's by this name. Of course, my information officer was my cousin, who was not one of the brightest in the class. Um, <laughs> so I, I believe also she heard about me because by the grace of God, I too uh, was always nearer the top of my class than the middle. So we knew about each other by reputation yeah. and also by the fortuitous link provided by my cousin was her classmate and and third day, by the fact that we lived near each other, two, three days we saw each other uh, while going about our normal business. So well, that was how, you know, I've known her since she was in primary school, when none of us were thinking about French work. We just knew each other. But much later in life, when I was in Ibadan University, she was in the, doing the HSC in the Ibadan Grammar School at the university. And again, we met because we knew each other. and. Um, we talked to each other, and at first I didn't think anything was coming out of it. Because I know, I mean, somebody we've known for so many years. But we all talked to each other, got home, we saw each other. 
and gradually we just felt like being in each other's company. And that's why the way it happened. Not that I just met one girl one day, oh, so then, no, no, no. It was something you have, you've been around and we're around, you know, each other. But when the time came, gradually, the relationship got built up. And uh, we got married five years later. When I graduated from Ibadan in 63, she graduated from IFE in 1967. So I waited four years as a graduate working in Lagos for her to graduate. I don't think that will happen these days. You wait for four years, eh? Without it. <laughs> so, um, well, we are fortunate if your wife is your sister. And uh, in terms of intellect, in terms of aspirations, value, and what's important to you in your life, and we share the same level of integrity and commitment. Was very fortunate. That's how we met. How we met. Not on a particular day, we've known each other almost all our lives. Mm -hmm. I think this is just on a final note. Yes. There have been um, people banding about the phrase, a new Nigeria, a new Nigeria, yes. a new Nigeria. Yes. With benefit of insight and also uh, seeing into the future, some persons would say that uh, there's a Yoruba that says, what an elderly person sees, uh, a young person might not see that. Yes. When you put all of this into perspective, what is your vision of a new Nigeria? Thank you very much. You know, as an economist, my perspective is necessarily substantially economic. If Nigeria is not economically viable, I will tell you it's a waste of time. But in 1960, in the year of independence, a young a gentleman by the name of Sam Epele, who was the public relations manager of Nigerian Railway Corporation, he wrote a okay. book, The Promise of Nigeria. I read it when I was an undergraduate. He just listed the potentials of Nigeria in terms, first, of the geographical variety, the differences, the variety in soil types that could carry virtually any crop in the world, in terms of the subsoil that carried a lot of minerals, both solid, hydrocarbon, and gas, in terms of the forest resources, the various trees and crops, and palm canet and rubber and cocoa, etc., etc. And most important of all, in terms of the number and quality of Nigerians, the never say never give up spirit that is uniquely Nigerian. Yeah. I can do it spirit. Why not spirit? That this gives Nigeria a fantastic opportunity to be number one in the world. I can tell you I had a personal experience in 1967 when I went to Washington DC for the first time to attend a course in Washington DC. One afternoon I went to the shop to buy something. I went in, picked what I wanted, went to the teller, paid the person there. As I was, as I turned back to go, he said, he said, hi, I said, yes. He said, are you from Africa? I said, yes, I said, why do you ask me? He said, you know, if I'm, I know you are not American, you are not an American. I said, how do you know? He said, when you came in, 
You walked in as if you owned this shop. <laughs> you made him feel smaller than myself in his own shop. He said, you walked in as if you owned this shop. That is the quality. It's not present in all societies. There are societies that have given up. They feel nothing can change for the better. I eat it, party. No waste of time. They are preaching development. They are wasting time. You are giving alcohol and women. That's all. But thank God we are not like we are not in that place. Although the, the, the youth, the younger generation, uh, who are beginning to get frustrated, uh, begin, some of them are beginning to move into that space of almost giving up, seek relief in alcohol, in drugs. Yes, that's an unfortunate trend. We pray it does not continue. Amen. It was not so in the past. There was poverty, but people believe they can change, change the situation. I had a friend who had only two or three years of primary education. He would tell me, take me to Babangida. Take me to him. I'll tell him what I want. In other cultures, an illiterate would be too scared to move near even a clerk. I went to Hong Kong many years ago at the airport. I saw two ladies, clearly Yoruba people, but wanted to fly to London with me on the same flight. And uh, the way they were talking, we have thought they owned the plane. This was, they didn't speak a word of English. Now, illiterate women in other cultures will not dare to leave their village because they have the language handicap in the next village. They won't leave the village. This one flew halfway across the world without being, speak, without being able to speak a word of English. That tells you about quality. You put that into the Nigerian package, the soil, the, all that, then you have a fantastic combination that can be made to rise and fly. But due to failed leadership, again and again, we continue to crawl on the landscape. When I was said I wanted to be president, I said, why are you so confident? I said, because I know the Nigerian character. I know the resource base. And I feel with right leadership, we can convert the potentials into production, into goods, into employment, into opportunities, into wealth. I said, so I would, I said, all I would do, the ingenuity of Nigerians is not in doubt, but we only see it in the negative when they are using it to beat the law. That is because we have built a, a wall around them, put a man in prison. The way you know whether it's smart is the way it tries to get out of prison. That to dig a hole under the wall or climb over the wall. I said, I will knock down the walls of restriction. Give them an opportunity to fly. And the genuity will then take positive forms of development and growth and development and, and, and production. And do you think people perhaps were not able to see that ingenuity that you had when you were running for presidents all those times? Is that what? Is that, why do you think people, perhaps Nigerians, didn't see that level of ingenuity when you were in, running in for who? president? In perhaps me? did not believe that uh, you could totally change the system. They did. They did. They voted for me. Look, I went around this country. Everywhere I went, no more. I got to Kaduna. I could not believe the crowd I saw. When the results were coming, I was winning. 
my friend uh, Eliza de Adeojo yeah, was sitting beside me. He was putting down the results. I was coming. I was there. I was there. I won a landslide victory. Don't let anybody tell you any bullshit. That 1999. Landslide. Late Ambassador Dende Fernandez. You heard of the name? I know. I know. He told me in London. He was one of my backers. He said, Olu, you are robbed. He said, I've seen the results with Americans. It was not close. You won a landslide victory. And I know I did. But like what Premier Akintola said, was reported to have said, I don't know whether he said so. This election is not about votes. So it, it wasn't votes. The military had decided that one of them must replace them. And I was not one of them. Uh, I thought I was one of them. I served in the administration for five years at the topmost level. There was no way I would become president and then turn against that administration, start harassing the members. Then I'm under, undermining myself. I thought that would be sufficient assurance that I've not got out of my way to witch hunt. That I would, as I said during the campaign, I said I will be sworn in on a particular day and date. I draw a thick line. Whatever happens after that day, it's my responsibility. Now, do my best to deal with it. But I will not go into history to go and look for problems. I will not export old problems into the future. Because I will have enough problems to deal with without doing that. Those were statements designed to assure them that I was not going to mention anybody. But if in the course of my tenure, any matter becomes relevant and critical. I will deal with it. I went to worry and some people said, you are Yoruba, I said yes. So when Midwest was created, we were cheated. We were given very few things by way of asset sharing. And uh, if you become president, will you write that wrong? And I told them the same thing that I'll be president with the from a date in the future. My responsibility will start from that date forward. What we're talking about is about 20 years in the, past. in the past. But if you succeed in making that issue current in the future, I will deal with it. But if it does not become current, I can't do anything about it. So, in sum, uh, I believe the future, we have a future. If we have a leadership, let me put that naturally and genuinely feels concerned about others. It's, you cannot manufacture it. You either, either a caring person or you don't care. If you are a, you are a caring person and God has enabled you to not to be greedy, to know that it is God who promotes. You have such leadership that prepared to work for the people, genuinely, not just by word of mouth, with, with integrity. Nigerians are smart. They will see that this man is the, the true thing, is the genuine article. And they will respond in a way that will shock you. I believe that.
Thank you very much. Most this, is, this is beautiful. I feel like we might have to come back another day to talk about 1999. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah, welcome. I want to thank you for coming at all. I think it's a big privilege for you to have met and interviewed. Uh, you know, I run away from this interview. Please, we would like to take a picture. Sincerely, I hope you know that Papa is a commander of the federal.